Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Christine, great to be able to catch up with you. And and what you do in in our conversation today is going to be maybe a little bit different versus what people think about or hear about on television when they talk about just like, let's pick a couple stocks. So, um, uh, and and I I think that's really important because you've got this big picture macro view of the world um, and you are a manager of managers, which a lot of people don't really know what that is and it's for Sun Life. So why don't you just describe a little bit about what that that means, what the role actually is. It's, uh, It's a very sophisticated role really in the industry. Sure. First of all, thank you. Um, it's great to see you, Catherine, even though it's thank so you. far apart. Uh, absolutely. So at Sun Life Global Investments, what we do is we focus on holistic managed solutions. So a lot of our time is spent on macroeconomic analysis, thinking about the split between equities versus fixed income within equities. We do a lot of work in terms of what the geographic split should be. Do we want to be overweight U.S.? Do we want to be more tilted towards EM or vice versa? And then within fixed income, it's a little bit more limited. Our bonds allocation is is more Canadian and U.S., although we do have a, a little component of global and we do have a little bit of emerging market bonds as well, but that tends to be smaller. So what we mean by manager of managers is once we've decided or done all this work on what our allocation should be, and what the different assets classes are that we wanna include in this managed solution. We then have a team that goes out there and searches for what we would consider best in class managers around the world. Now, best in class doesn't necessarily mean highest total return, it's risk adjusted returns. So we're looking at, you know, is this a a sustainable investment value, value proposition? Is this a process, investment process that is tested and that is consistent? Uh, And is there team consistency or or team duration, if you will? So what we look for is a team that's been working together for a long time, and there's a very strong uh, process or or ethics process that that we see in place. So that's what we do in in a nutshell. Right. Um, A couple of items I want to pick up on and unpack. But first, when you talk about risk-adjusted returns, I think that that's something that you know, gets talked about a lot in the financial industry. And, but I don't think people really understand what it means. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what it does mean to you? And there's certain metrics that fall under risk adjusted returns that, you know, might be a little bit too much in the weeds, but maybe you can name them uh, and why they're important. It's a great question, Catherine. And uh, once a year, we do a very detailed strategic asset allocation modeling. And that's actually done with uh, an internal group that's part of Sun Life called the International Investment Center. So simplistically put, they kind of do this analysis, look at all these different scenarios and expected returns for all the different asset classes that we're looking at. And they plot efficient frontiers. And I'm sure by now people are thinking, wow, that sounds vaguely familiar from my university days. But it's essentially that. What we're trying to do is find the optimal level of return at a given level of risk. And then we have different portfolios. We have 
low-risk portfolios, we have balanced, and we have growth-oriented portfolios. So in other words, you know, looking at being able to combine different asset classes to enhance the, the, the overall return of the portfolio. So some of the metrics would be standard deviation or volatility of the portfolio versus the, uh, the return. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, those are kind of the um, metrics that most investors would be most com- um, aware of or comfortable with. Right. And, and just to remind us, how, how, do you, um, how do you calculate the volatility within a portfolio? And I, I bring that up importantly because I think a lot of people um, who aren't in the industry, but very, very smart people, they look at a fund and they say, wow, look, those returns have been so great over the past year or two, but they don't understand the actual risk that that money manager took. And when I say risk, I'm not saying buying a good company or a bad company. I'm saying that a company that maybe the stock went from 200 to 600 back down to right. 100. Like that's the kind of, you know, is, is that what you're referring to? That's right. So, you know, standard deviation, it's, I won't go into the, uh, the actual calculation, but essentially, if you think of a normal distribution, going back to our stats class, uh-huh. you want to look at plus or minus one standard deviation. What's the likelihood your return falls within that band? Now, there are some funds where in a, it, you're not aware necessarily that your range of potential returns is quite wide. So if you happen to be invested in that fund at a time when the market favors that category, so it could be tech stocks, for example, or just to use a category that we're very familiar with over the last 18 months, stay-at-home stocks. Now, if you think of the Pelotons of the world or the Apples of the world, they've done extremely well because we were all stuck at home. We were working from home and doing everything from home. So because you're not aware or not necessarily thinking about the potential variability and you're investing at the right time, you might be underestimating the potential downside when things start going the other way. So that's what we mean by volatility and and standard deviation. So a simplistic uh, analogy would be the less volatile stocks would be typically stocks like utilities where you know a lot of your returns will come from dividends as opposed to capital appreciation. And, and overall asset classes, you would also expect less volatility from bonds versus equities, because again, a lot of your return would typically come from the actual coupon or the yield that you're getting. Right. On the higher end of the volatility would be, say, your commodity stocks, right? So when oil's at $20, an oil stock has much different earnings profile than when oil's at 82, like where it is today. Mm-hmm. That's how we think about it. Now- okay. Just because an asset class or a stock or an industry is volatile doesn't mean it's bad because when you put it into a well-diversified portfolio, it can actually contribute to the overall risk-adjusted return. So that's the other factor you need to think about as well. Yeah. And and I think that, um, and I appreciate you going through the details of that. Um, when, when somebody does see a fund, a fund manager and see great returns, what's the metric then that they should be like, saying, wait a second, I got to look at the returns, but I've got to look at the That's risk right. adjusted return. What, will it say actually on, on a fund prospectus or what have you, um, risk adjusted, or should we be looking at standard deviation? What would, what would be the common one they're using these days? That's a great question. And these are all stats that we would look at when we're selecting managers as well. So for a lot of retail investors, you can go online and find just not just the short-term return. I would encourage you to look at the longer-term return. So three, five year, and if there is a 10 year return, look at that. So you can get a sense of, you know, is is most of their return coming from just a single good year? So again, we use the uh, stay at home stocks as an example. If you look at a three year return, 
for a tech stock that benefited from stay at home, it might have done extremely well over three years. But then if you compare it to the one year, you might realize most of that came in the most recent 12 months. Mm-hmm. So the other factor, which is fully disclosed is standard deviation. So that's the other thing to look at. So comparing your return versus your standard deviation, that's how you would look at the risk that you're taking on. Okay. Thank you for that. I think it's so important. Um, you know, to talk about because we don't and people know that they should, but they don't. So, um, so stepping back here, though, in terms of um, your role, your position and, and really looking at the big macro picture, talk to us a little bit from a strategy where, where first of all, geographically, you want to be overweight and underweight. That's uh, it. Where we are today is actually quite different than where we started out the year. Hmm. We started out the year, you know, as you know, we had seen U.S. equities, first China equities did extremely well. Uh, In the second half of last year, they were the first into the lockdown, first to come out. And they also benefited from our shift of spending from services to goods. So we stayed at home and we bought more of everything. And then the U.S. started catching up uh, in terms of the recovery trade. Coming into this year, we thought, you know, especially with the vaccine, we should start seeing it spread out to the rest of the world. And so we were starting to look at Europe, we were starting to look at emerging markets. But then what we started realizing as the, as, the, as the year progressed is specific to EM, for example, China started really focusing on common prosperity. So, you know, putting in a lot of regulatory changes, trying to think about how can we broaden who benefits from the growth that we've seen. In China. So that's really had an impact on, say, the tech sector, for example. We've mm-hmm. seen a sharp correction. We've seen a lot more regulation around tutoring, after school tutoring, et cetera. So mm-hmm. a lot of this noise is starting to impact, has impacted China and EM. And so currently we're kind of neutral. We think uh, we do still expect EM to gradually recover next year. Because remember, they never had the same fiscal stimulus that the US and Canada did. So for a lot of emerging market countries to really recover, they need the vaccine. And I think the WHO was talking about maybe mid next year, we should get to about 70% for the rest of the world. And that's good. Mm -hmm. So the Pfizer pill is a net positive. You know, we're not entirely sure how it really, you know, how available it will be for the rest of the world. We certainly think it'll help what's happening in the US and Canada, but not sure if it will really help South Africa, for example, at this point Mm -hmm. in time. So right now we're kind of- Sorry, is that just more from a manufacturing perspective we just don't have that's right so it'll be it'll be similar to what we saw with the vaccine Uh, manufacturing will have to ramp up so i think that whoever orders first will get it first and that'll be the u.s maybe canada maybe europe so where we are today is um we're just slightly overweight equities we do think that you know this recovery is still proceeding although you're seeing these ebbs and flows based on different mutant or variants that are popping up uh, we do have a tilt towards cyclicals. We prefer the cyclical companies that are going to benefit more with this reopen. And also we think the valuation gap between growth and secular growth in these tech companies and cyclical companies are still quite wide. So slightly overweight equity, still overweight UUS, although much less than where we were six months ago. Neutral, basically global and neutral emerging markets, kind of just reflecting you know, a more balanced risk reward for uh, EM and Europe right now. Okay, and, and that's for e- you know, Europe and EM. Um, okay. what, what are your expected returns though? Or have you normalized your expectations 
for 2022 for U.S. and Canadian equities, just given the strength in the rally. Some people think that we have pulled forward the performance, whether it's in the stock market and or profits and profitability. Um, where do you stand on that debate? We are cautious. I think our expected returns are quite muted uh, for 2022. And to your point, exactly what you said, we've pulled forward a lot, a lot of everything. Just if you look at PE multiples, where we're trading at today, and in part, the elevated equity multiples are because stock bond yields are so low. So you kind of have this situation where historically, you know, bonds and equities tend to be negatively correlated. So in other words, when bonds do well, equities don't do as well. But right now, because where yields are, it's actually positively correlated. It can, it can actually both sell off on the same day. So we do have relatively conservative expectations for returns next year, maybe in the you know, high single digit return on a well-balanced equity portfolio. Um, but we do think next year, depending on how the vaccine rolls out, you might see you know, this rolling recovery to the rest of the world start to benefit internationally. Mm -hmm. hmm. Fixed income is trickier. On the bonds, yeah. it's a lot trickier. <laughs> I know. It's amazing to look at this US 10-year yield at 1.4 was 1.6 prior, and it just kind of bounces around in a range. But, at, you know, following Fed Chair Jerome Powell last week, he obviously struck the exact right chord for the equity market That's right. Um, to continue its upward march and upward momentum. It's, it's pretty incredible because I think, you know, everybody was expecting to see these rates rise maybe sooner than not. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's the case, or at least the market's not thinking it's the case. Yeah, there's certainty starting to reprice a little bit the expectation, right? Unlike what we're seeing in Canada, where there are still quite a few hikes being priced in for next year, because maybe uh, Governor T Macklin isn't quite as dovish, or he's kind of towing the line a bit more closely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I, you know, it, I was going to ask you as well about Canada, then where, where do you see the, the rate expectations here? And, and do you think they'll be right? Is the market pricing it accurately? Yeah, it's, um, that's a big debate for us, Catherine, because mm -hmm. if you look at just the fundamentals, so putting everything else aside, just looking at Canada in total isolation, recognizing that we can never do that, mm -hmm. we have fully recouped all the jobs that we lost during the pandemic. So in terms of on the job fronts, we're actually way ahead of, of the U.S. We still have a little bit of a fiscal impulse. So the Trudeau government is talking about still some stimulus and some infrastructure spending. So that's going to be net positive. Uh, and, and inflation clearly is an issue for us, even though we are a producer of a lot of basic commodities. So if, if you look at that in isolation, you would say, yeah, it makes sense. You know, we've started tapering and we should be looking at hiking rates from extraordinary low levels. Now, when I say we can't look at it in isolation is our biggest trading partner is the U.S. Mm -hmm. So what the U.S. dollar and CAD does is very important. So right now, the market's actually pricing in about four hikes for Canada over the next 12 months and only 1.7 for the Fed. Mm. So... You know, it's part of the reason why the CAD has been quite strong. And, and, you know, is that a good thing? Does that impact some of our economic activity, like exports, for example? It's too soon to tell. So it's a complicated question because you here you're seeing the bottom up telling you one thing, but then the relative story relative to the rest of the world, relative to the Fed, is kind of pulling you in a different direction. So far, you're still seeing that wide gap between expectations from the Bank of Canada and the Fed. So we'll see how mm -hmm. that persists.
And I think because there's so much uncertainty and valuations are high in certain areas and there's other areas you just know you don't want to go into. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people are looking for alternative assets and asset managers are, are, is that one of the areas that you're, you also obviously have been invested in for years or no? Absolutely. So when I say we do this annual uh, asset allocation modeling, part of what we do in that exercise is we look at what other asset classes make sense in a well-balanced portfolio. And as part of that, we think about what the new issues are or the bigger issues are that we need to address. So several years ago, we had highlighted inflation and low yields as being an issue. And today, clearly it's much more of an issue than it was even several years ago. So we do add, uh, we do have private fixed income in uh, the, the managed solutions. Mm -hmm. It's a relatively modest allocation because there are liquidity considerations. Uh, and we also Canadian commercial mortgages. So again, it's like relatively modest allocation. The other thing that we've done is on the, um, so you'll notice most of this on the fixed income side, because we feel like the biggest challenge right now is on the fixed income side with yields where they are and inflationary pressures. The other thing we did is we have a, um, a manager that uh, basically offers us what we call an opportunistic fixed income portfolio. And they can essentially almost go anywhere and do anything. So they can invest in currencies because currencies are essentially a zero duration bond, right? Because mm. you take no duration risk, but you get the overnight rate of that country. Uh, they can own Chinese sovereign bonds because it's still paying 3% with, a, with a, basically a, a very high credit rating, for example. Um, so they're able to do all of that. They're able to own real return bonds. So you get the inflation protection in there. So that's where we've added... Um, a lot of uh, unique uh, mm -hmm. or, or more illiquid uh, options. On the mm -hmm. equity side, you know, what we added recently was a very interesting natural resources mandate. As Canadians, when we think resources, we think oil and gas and mining. This mandate, uh, we do have traditional infrastructure. We do have uh, traditional REITs as well. But the third sleeve is actually invested in agribusiness, mm -hmm. water, mm -hmm. and clean energy or renewable energy. So that's kind of a, a forward looking uh, definition of natural resources. Right. Um, and even though, you know, that's a manager that you've hired, do you know how they're, so it's not something that you're personally picking right. the stock or whatever, or, right. or the company, but how are they investing in water? It's a great question because typically you think utilities, that's it. And they certainly own a couple of utilities. Uh, they also own a few companies in uh, China, for example, where they're dealing with water cleaning or water technology. Uh, and, and they're also looking at companies that are finding unique ways to, for example, transform or enhance the supply chain of manufacturing. So a lot of their uh, companies are in Europe that they're invested in. Some are in the US and some are actually in, uh, in, in China because the water issue is probably uh, the most obvious and the most urgent in China at the moment. I mean, obviously there are parts of the US like California where we know it's issue as well, but from a uh, country level, it's a big issue in China. And that's where they've actually dedicated a lot of investments. On it. Um, and, and just for our viewers to understand as well, in, in terms of the products that are available, two thirds of your investors are actually institutions. So you're a manager of manager for these big institutions that want help in terms of where do I allocate capital? That's right. number one. And, and so, so retail clients can actually also join in those managed solutions. That's but then right. you also at Sun Life uh, operate, I, I call them mutual funds. Is that fair? Yes, that's okay. right. 
there's always new they're also like fun, very though. they're they're sort of pieces that you can put together if you like so we have U.S. equity mutual funds, we have Canadian equity mutual funds, and, and clients can sort of pick and choose uh, among those as well, or they can choose to invest in the managed solutions. Got it, which is kind of a little bit more what we're talking about. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, and, and Christine, just to kind of talk about, you know, you, you mentioned this in terms of what natural resources looks like going forward. Talk just a little bit about how you and your team are thinking about ESG investing what's changed, how difficult it is to, you know, maybe get the exposure, but also make sure you're doing fiduciary duty in the sense that you're going to try to get the best returns for your clients. I think that's a bit of a struggle at, at times as well for, for money managers. That is, I think what you just asked there is the, I would call it the definitive question of 2021. It's the, you know, I think, um, the pandemic really highlighted the issues uh, around sustainability, um, and and it doesn't just have to be on the environment. It was also the the social structure. So, yeah. you know, we clearly saw even in Canada there were certain segments of the Canadian population that were far too fragile. They were just one step away from you know, being very disadvantaged. And it was a fortunate the government stepped in with a lot of stimulus. So that was a big part of it. So the social need really became a highlight. The clearly with COP26, the, uh, that's going on in Glasgow at the moment, there's a highlighted um, urgency as to whether you're seeing the fires in California, fires in BC, hurricanes in Texas, all of this is really highlighting that. So it's starting to really resonate. I mean, the younger generation, the millennials and younger, they were always more focused on ESG. But I would say the last 20 months, the world is now focused on ESG. What we've also started seeing is um, it's actually hitting the financial, um, there is actually a financial impact now. So water shortages actually uh, created and resulted in an interruption to semiconductor chip manufacturing in Taiwan. It was brief, but it happened. Hmm. So most people don't even know water goes into making chips that then go into everything else from our cars to our computers. We saw what happened in Texas with the hurricane and what happened with power prices. We, we just saw recently what happened in Europe, you know, with wind power or the, uh, the, the, the amount of wind that they were getting is about 30% lower and that impacted the availability of power. So, and that all affects the earnings profile of these utilities. So now from a fiduciary perspective, we're seeing, um, we're seeing our role as a fiduciary in implementing ESG from, a from two perspectives. One, we believe that a big part of our role is to ensure our clients live a longer, healthier life and that they have a good retirement. So a big part of that is thinking holistically about how we can impact the world we live in. So that's one part of the fiduciary. And as a sub part of that is our clients are increasingly worried about environmental challenge. So as a fiduciary, we need to reflect that. And then the second part is what I just mentioned, the financial impact. So if part of our role is thinking about risk adjusted returns and risk management, we need to now integrate ESG factors into the way we look at our, our managers and, and what asset classes we invest in. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's amazing on that front how much really has changed in the, in the past 20 months. That Absolutely. Has to get analyzed. Absolutely. And it, and it is encouraging in that, you know, one of the concerns, if you think longer term, um, the World Bank has talked about this, the erosion of the middle class, right? They've talked about how there are certain, um, so you have the top 10% that 
is somewhat protected because where you're able to upgrade your skills, but the middle class where your skills are increasingly being uh, replaced by automation, yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah. So one of the positives in our view of what's happening on the ESG push is that you have the potential to create really high quality jobs. So you think the amount of R and D that needs to be that needs to go into new solutions. If you think about, you know, if you used to work, let's say, in the oil patch. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a lot of strong technical skills, and you could work in solar or wind manufacturing. Mm-hmm. A lot of very similar skill sets, if you will, just applied in a different way. So. We think, you know, if you think about the big focus of the U.S. infrastructure spend, if you think about the Korean New Deal, which is part of the Build Back Better, if you think of China's 14th five-year plan, which is all focused on automation, AI, all of these industries have the potential to create a whole new generation of high jobs. Mm -hmm. That's why we actually don't think it's a negative. We think it's a positive. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Christine, we're going to leave it there. It was great to see you. I always like to ask people last kind of words of wisdom when you think about the markets and the uncertainty. What, what would you say? Oh, boy. Um, so in other words, it's like, you know, what keeps us up at night or what should yeah. we should well, You know, we think the balance of risks are elevated now. So, um, you know, if you look into 2022, even though we have a lot more on the medical side. So eventually COVID will become endemic. It'll just be something we live with. There are a lot of other issues that will now tilt to the to 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 the risk, balance of risk downwards. So you have policy that's going to start tightening. We talked about the uh, central banks. Yeah. That will have an impact, especially on anyone that bought a home at these interest rates. Yeah. Like elevated house prices. What does that mean when interest rates go up? You know, we have inflation that we think, even though it's transitory, will stick around for a bit longer. So that erodes your purchasing power. And we have elevated valuations of equities. So even though companies are doing well, the stocks are not cheap. So what we would say is, you know, be cautious, think longer term. So make your allocation, your investment decisions with a longer term perspective. And what we tell our clients is when you have that longer term perspective, you won't panic if the markets sell off 10 to 15%, which it, which it could easily do given where it's come from. Yeah. Uh, and you might actually be able to allocate more to your portfolio right. at that point in time. So think long-term, you know, COVID is turning the corner. That's a good news. Mm-hmm. Eventually we'll get to see each other in person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's time. It's really, you know, it's time. We're, we're so lucky that we do have you know, readily available vaccines here. It's, it's unbelievable, you know? And especially if we think about where we were a year ago and, and staying hidden so that you wouldn't get exposed. It's pretty, it's amazing how far we've come in, in just a year. I think just, you know, have to get through a little bit longer, but but I think people mentally need to get to see each other. That's right. So, That's as, right. as I sit at home and use. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Christine, great to see you. Thank you, thank you.